0: And earnest for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord, God, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Down to verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, Dominion and power, both now and forever, amen. well, let us pray together, so our Father, as these words are written for our admonition, we pray that we too would be wise in our generation, that we do would be uh, saints who contend for that faith once for all, delivered to the saints, and pray that you would instruct us in your holy will and way for us individually and as a church together, we pray for that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to Uh, preserve us and to uphold us in all things. And it's in him that we pray. Amen. My father was born in Scotland in 1929 in the most church-going nation of the world of that day. Congregations in nearby Edinburgh were packed to the gills morning and evening. For example, the celebrated Robert Candlish had preached to thousands Every day at St. George's West Church in a large building with a towering spire on the fashionable west end of the city, only a stone's throw from the celebrated Edinburgh Castle. Uh, Candlish, whose name you might know, was succeeded by another name you might know, Uh, succeeded there by Alexander White, who not only held crowds spellbound for his 50-year ministry there at the church morning and evening, but... Also, in addition, the young adults would come by the hundreds and pack the church to hear his talks on Sunday afternoons on Pilgrim's Progress and the Shorter Catechism and so forth. St. George's West was an immense congregation, chock full of spiritual vitality, one of the leading churches in the nation, the birthplace of many ministers and missionaries and earnest Christians and faithful workers. Now, it's closed now. For the last few decades, it was the home to only a few gray-haired social gospel types. They finally shut the doors for good back in 2009. And, in fact, throughout the whole country, only 5% of the entire population of the nation are even members of the Church of Scotland, and only a small fraction of that are in attendance today. So what happened? When my dad was born, it was the most church-going land in the world. By the time he died, it was one of the most unbelieving. And the same thing has affected nearly every denomination and historic church throughout the Western world. A catastrophic collapse of Christianity that I don't think we talk about often enough. What what happened, you asked? What, What brought about such a collapse of Christian civilization? Well, just what we have been studying this summer. A new religion came out of Germany that still used Christian words, but meant something completely different by them. So people said that they still believed in the resurrection, though they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Huh? They said they believed that Christ was God. Oh good. Well, not believe that not because they had a high view of Christ, but a very low view of God. They said that they believed the scriptures, but that those scriptures they believed were merely a record of the religious experience of people of their own day. This was an extremely confusing time, and it was hard to pin down when it crept into the church, because people still used the same vocabulary. But Gresham Machen wrote a book 100 years ago this year, exactly, Christianity and Liberalism. It had... Much to teach the world of that day, and it has much to teach us now about not only how the church has come to the state, but also to engage us in the struggle of every age to contend for the faith once for all given to the saints. As we've seen in our study this summer, the issues confronting the church now are nothing new. I don't mean that they're the same as they were in Machen's Day. I mean in every generation. There is an attempt to bend Christianity to suit the shifting prejudices and feelings of the culture. And therefore, in every generation, there must be a call to wake up and to contend for the faith. Well, we turn to the short letter of Jude today to hear his wake-up call to the church in order that we, too, might be wise and contend in our generation. In the passage before us, Jude, you notice, is not simply telling us to believe the faith or even to spread the faith or to live the faith. He says, no, contend for the faith, which I think you'll agree is is often much more challenging. Children, to contend means to struggle or to oppose or to fight, to strive in order to win or achieve something. That's what it means to contend. And that's what this whole letter is about, our need as saints to contend for the faith that has been delivered to us. And this letter, you notice, is addressed to the saints, to all those who are called and sanctified by God and preserved in Christ Jesus and so forth. It's it's for every one of us here, not merely for leaders or ministers of the gospel. It's for all of us. Uh, There's a quote that's pretty famous that's often mistakenly attributed To Edmund Burke, it goes like this. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, whoever said it, it was true. You see, there are often two parties to blame whenever evil triumphs. And that is definitely the case in the church. So, yes, as the Lord warned us, wolves have come in in sheep's clothing. Well, no surprise there but you can't really blame wolves for being wolves. The real question is, what did the church do? What did the saints do? Will they be vigilant? Will they be careless in the name of charity and peace? Will they resist accommodation and compromise, or will they forget their urgent biblical warnings and welcome them in my grandma what big teeth? you have. This is the question in Jude's day. This is the question you see in every day. There is something uncomfortably contemporary about this letter written nearly 2,000 years ago to a church that has been doctrinally and morally compromised. Jude's language, uh, I skipped some of the real choice stuff, but it is bracing, scalding, and severe, Uh, not because I didn't want to read it, but just in the entrance of focusing on certain parts for today. Uh, He doesn't speak in a nice, quiet, and controlled way. He is giving a call to arms. Um, Maybe I I should here uh, give you just a uh, little bit. Um, Verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Uh, and so forth, clouds without water, carried about by winds. Uh, it's, uh, what did the British say, a little over the top? Uh, it's, it's bracing, yeah. Um, this letter is a call to arms. And so Machen wrote of his own time, the present is not a time for ease or pleasure, but for earnest and prayerful work. A terrible quiet crisis, unquestionably, has arisen in the church, in the ministry of the churches are to be found hosts of those who are hostile to the very foundations of the faith. Well, I suppose that could be said in any day, but it was certainly a crisis in that day that has come to come to roost in our day. Machin continues, there have been days in which there could be a propagation of Christianity without our defense. But such a day, at any rate, is past. At the present time, when the opponents of the gospel are almost in control of our churches, the slightest avoidance of the defense of the gospel is just sheer unfaithfulness to the Lord. There have been previous great crises in the history of the church, crises almost as, as comparable to this. In such times, God has always saved the church, but He has always saved it not by theological pacifists, but by sturdy contenders for the truth. I like that. Sturdy contenders. Well, well, Christians, this is what Jude is after. He clearly is giving a rousing call for sturdy contenders. When Jude writes that we must contend for the faith, he doesn't mean the act of believing in Jesus. No, he's talking about the faith, that is, the body of truth, which Christians have received and must maintain in the face of those who are denying the Lord uh, God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded here that false teaching leads inevitably also to false living, as Jude goes on to describe the cancer that was then eating away at the holiness of the church. In verse 4, men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. As he goes on and mentions in verse 7-7, as Sodom and Gomorrah uh, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and strange flesh are set forth as an example and so forth. So so it is that uh, Jude warns that false teaching has led already to false living. And Jude uses a word for immorality that covers the full range of sexual sin. Um, I happen to be in a... uh, Christian Student Organization's building yesterday and was very distressed as I looked around and saw all of the signs with the uh, very colorful flags that were everywhere around there. One, one of the signs said, uh, we are all born naked and everything after that is drag. And I think, how have we gotten into such a state? And so I think, why do I, why do I ask? Uh, the, 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 the false teaching that had then crept into the church. In, In our case, it took a generation or two for the other shoe to drop. But the false teaching leads inevitably to the false living. To be clear, the gospel announces that we are saved only by the free grace of Christ and not by our own works, lest anyone should boast. He takes our sins, past, present, and future, and nails them, if you like, to His cross. And that is how we are forgiven, and freely and fully forgiven. And the Gospel also announces that the same Lord gives His Holy Spirit, that the people thus forgiven might have new hearts, indeed new lives, and know Him truly. As we read elsewhere, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And what a struggle it's been over the years, not to be very careless Christians or to be very legalistic Christians, but to say we must hold these things in biblical order, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the true grace of our God. And it's very important that we understand the true gospel, not falling into either error. We live in a day in which people want God without godliness, Christianity without commitment. They want the benefits of Christ without any cost of discipleship. And so Jude, writes one, is a tract for our times. Do you see? A tract for our times. Now, this call to contend might rub some of us the wrong way. We are Christian people, and Christianity's cardinal virtue is love. That is true. Well, some people may feel that there should therefore be no contention in the church. Surely we should only have bright and positive things to say. However, practically any page of the Bible will overturn that incorrect conclusion. Any survey of the words of the prophets, surely, or the apostles show that we must always contend. Our Lord contended with the Pharisees, why he told them plainly they were a brood of vipers. And Jude likewise minces no words about such people. Verse 13, they're brute beasts. They are spots or perhaps stains in your love feast, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You know, the Bible doesn't usually speak with such harsh language about the ungodly people of the world. Um, there's, there's a general understanding or even expectation that uh, worldly people who don't know the Lord, who have no hope and without God in the world, are, are lost. But whenever we find ungodly teachers in the church, people that have known better, and are leading others to perdition, we find that matters of life and death call for a very different tone of voice, don't you think? These men simply don't have the wrong view. They're evil. They're not just overemphasizing grace a bit. They are damned for the lies they are teaching. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, said Jude. Uh, And why such language? Well, of course, to wake you up, to wake up the church who has accepted such people into their midst to alert them to the danger. I mean, we would like to think that all heretics of the church uh, snarl and drool and have their hands like this, right? And They twist up their mustaches into tiny little points, right? But it's not so. I told you how Machen himself, as he was studying this in Germany, was completely taken under the spell of the arch-heretic Wilhelm Hermann for a time. He was so alive, Machen wrote. It was so attractive. According to the prejudices of the culture, it was so easy to believe. And this is what Jude warns in verse 4. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. Men who long ago were marked out for condemnation. Ungodly men and so forth. Creeps, he says. Yeah, they've crept into the church, you see. The creeps, wolves coming in sheep's clothing, as the Lord put it. It's astonishing how fast the church can be overturned by the false teachers on the inside. In this letter, a, b- a bold alarm to arouse a sleepy and unconcerned church to contend. That's the first four verses, as I would lay them out for you. But you're going to say to me now, David, well, what does he want of me? What can I do? Well, starting in verse 17. Jude's letter teaches the Christians there, the saints of God and the church, how we must all contend together for the faith against fatal errors. Jude gives three sets of directions here, which uh, I'll summarize in three parts this way, that we are to be alert, that we are to be mature, and that we are to be rescuing others. Alert, mature, and rescuing others. And these three directions, by the way, I think also address three specific, you might say, psychological needs of Christians as we also come into contact with this situation. You see, Jude warns for several verses in high language that ungodly teachers have crept into this church unnoticed. And what is your... First reaction prone to be when you find out that your church has been infiltrated with false teachers? Well, you might be shocked and discouraged. You might say, What's wrong with this church? I mean, Jude's first section answers this question right away. Um, picking up here in verse, uh, which is it here, 17. But you beloved, remember the words which were spoken to you before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus, how they told you that there would be ungodly mockers in this last time, who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts, that is to say didn 't you remember don 't you remember what the Lord said, how he repeatedly warned his disciples in many words about the wolves and sheep 's clothing that would come? Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many 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 such passages in paul and peter and john 's writings. The Bible is full of such warnings. Remember, Jude says the word that, that they spoke to you, okay, yes, the situation uh, it hurts the heart of everyone who loves the Lord. And you might be tempted to think, Lord, this is so bad. I just need to find a church where we won't have this problem, a pure church where false teachers don't rise up and lead people astray. You know what you're asking for when you ask the Lord that? You're asking Him to kill you <laughs> and take you to glory. There's only one church where that is the case, and that is the church triumphant. Because here on earth, we've been told by the Lord Himself and His apostles and prophets that this is what we must always expect. We don't need to be discouraged when this happened. No, he he, he said, we've been warned. There's never going to be a safe place in the world, and certainly not in the church. There's never going to be a time when we're going to be delivered. We need to be ready and alert. Don't you remember his challenge for us to be vigilant? Keep watch, he said. "The The price of faithfulness is constant vigilance. And so, as Jude warns us, people are creeping in, unnoticed. And history, by the way, also testifies to us that in in an unfaithful church, a compromised church, okay, you might be able to maintain your faith. But your children raised in compromised churches will not survive, spiritually speaking. I say this is a lesson from history. We can never give up the fight or fail to contend, and if we are accommodating in one generation, if we get married to the spirit of the age in one generation, we're going to be a widow in the next, right? The church must always be the church militant, and because the enemy is so subtle, creeping in unnoticed, we must beware. So uh, this is the first thing that he has warned us to do, to be alert. Secondly, to be mature, to be mature. In the next two verses before us, uh, let's let's just take here 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith and so forth. uh, Jude is urging the believers to take certain steps that will render them immune to the appeal of falsehood, steps that will make them steadfast in their loyalty to the Word of God, He wants them to be well-grounded. I've mentioned to you before, even recently, that it's much easier to be riding a bicycle if you're moving forward, right, than if you're just standing still. And the Christian life is just like that. It's much easier to keep your balance and be safe when you are moving forward. The more a Christian devotes himself to growth and life, the more stable and secure he'll be. So under this heading, to be mature, under this heading to be mature, Jude gives four quick specific directions. First, build yourself up in your most holy faith, verse 20. Again, n- not, uh, not just believing, but what we believe. We saw a couple weeks ago in verse 3 here that, that this is the, the faith once for all committed to the saints. He means that we must become better established in the truth. We are never safer than what we are getting stronger in the faith, when we are seeking to be more and more established or built up in our holy faith, uh, learning to distinguish truth from error, not just going forth uh, um, blindly, uh, right, gentle into that good night. The same goes for a church or a congregation. We must build ourselves up in the faith, building it into our minds and hearts and feet- and thinking and choosing and speaking. Give the Bible first place in your daily life. Second, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. We all know those people who well, they seem to know a great deal of doctrine, but their lives are lacking the power or the beauty of godliness. And Jude is not at all interested in doctrine for doctrine's sake, nor is any writer of Scripture. Jude wants us to know that The God that we call upon is to be trusted in and loved. And we are to delight to call upon him to abandon our own self-confidence and live and pray in the Holy Spirit. Here again, uh, Bible reading and prayer, the top of the list for the Christian's means of growth. Next, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God very close, I think, to what Jesus means when he says, abide in my love. Abide in the sunshine of my love. Live as God's beloved children in Christ. You know, a marriage is kept fresh and lively and new. Uh, it, that same marriage is full of joy, full of strength. A, a good marriage is, is always being renewed in love, and it's the same for you in the Lord. Your spiritual life If you do the same, it'll keep you from falling into error. Love is deepened by practicing it, by speaking it, by giving and receiving it. And so, he says, beloved, so keep yourselves in the love of God. And finally, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, verse 21. Don't forget in all these things that this world is is not your home. This life is fleeting very quickly away. Your citizenship is in heaven from which we expect a Savior. Don't forget where your treasure lies, where your true treasure is, for there your heart will be also. We will live the best kind of life if we always remember this world is not our home, that Christ has gone on ahead to prepare a place for us in that eternal city of God. Well, these are the four things that he urges upon his readers. Um, Building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. So I pause and ask, how is it with you? I mean, have you learned something new from God's Word in the past week? Uh, Received some correction, instruction, encouragement from His book? Are you often and regularly in prayer and finding in that close and intimate conversation with God and the Spirit a more wonderful and natural part of your daily life? Are you seeking ever deeper experiences of divine love and fanning the flames of your devotion to our Lord and His love for you? Are you watching yourself to see that you are not turned aside by deceitful pleasures and the cares of this world? This is what He's after, to, to, to be mature. Not a day without a step forward. Keep moving forward in the Word, in prayer. In the love of God and in the Christian hope. This is how the church is going to be able to stand, not just by being alert, which is extremely important if you're not alert, but by being mature. And finally, number three, he calls the saints to rescue others. To rescue others. He tells us negatively to beware of these false teachers, but positively, We must be rescuing those who have been taken in by them. Verse 22, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh that is watching yourselves also, lest you be tempted, as Peter put it. Well, okay, you said... um, rescue others what does he want me to do in such a situation as this in a day in which liberalism has uh, thoroughly infected the mainline church at least in in general and uh, leading others to this kind of false living that inevitably is associated with it what do you want me to do well let me tell you a story In 1862, a young man named Abraham Kuyper graduated from some years of liberal theological training from the University of Leiden, and uh, he, was, he was thoroughly immersed in this uh, early liberalism that had just come over from next door Germany, right? He, he wrote, um, I joined with great enthusiasm in the applause given to Professor Rovenhoff, when he, in his public lectures, broke with all belief in the resurrection of Jesus, right? There, there the professor of theology says, oh, I don't believe in this resurrection. And, and there, was a, there was an ovation, and he joined with it. Um, well, that was the young Kuiper. His first job, after receiving his doctorate in theology, was to take a pastoral charge in a Dutch village named Beset. He was a reformed minister, but he was not a Christian. He was a liberal He had little loyalty to that faith once for all delivered to the saints. However, a few of his parishioners in the village church took Jude's exhortation to heart. Kuiper talked with them. Well, he even argued with them. But he found in them something that he did not have himself. Uh, One of them in particular was an unmarried peasant woman in her early 30s named Petronella Baltus. She would concede nothing to her young minister's theological liberalism. In fact, she, she wouldn't even shake his hand when he came to visit her. And when he asked her why she wouldn't shake his hand, she told him that he was not preaching the gospel and that she would preach it to him instead. She confronted him about his unbelief in the Bible, his complete lack of faith in Jesus Christ, and not just the resurrection I mentioned earlier. She'd say, look, how can a man who has never found the way himself point others to it? She warned him that not only was he preaching false doctrine, but he himself was in danger of this very judgment. Petronella was different. Her her life had a power and a savor, a boldness and a confidence he had never experienced before. He was a brilliant man with a doctorate out of school, right, from some of the best teachers on the continent. She was a peasant woman, and she was speaking the truth of God right to his heart. And soon her forthrightness and gospel testimony, together with the piety of her life and that of others in the church, convinced this liberal minister that he was, in fact, lacking just what they had, and that what they had was the truth. And so it was that Abraham Kuyper was converted a man who was destined to be not only one of the world's most brilliant minds and sophisticated theologians, and if you like, the Gressimation of the Netherlands in his day, but he also won to Christ uh, many more through his writings, uh, became the prime minister of the Netherlands in 1900. He He was won to Christ through the witness of a peasant woman who had a true heart for Christ. By the way, although Kuiper was a married man, he always henceforth kept a picture of Petronella Baltus on his desk, which people must have thought was very odd. But she had saved his life, eternal life in Christ, and the rest of his life, he remembered her and became a champion devoted to the faith that he had found from a village congregation. So, I tell you, I hope that every last one of you will become Petronella Baltuses, who in our generation, according to our place and opportunity, contend winsomely, successfully, having compassion, but pulling people out of the fire for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. By the way, one more contemporary illustration that uh, came to me on the way over here. My, the president of my seminary in Charlotte, Reformed Seminary in Charlotte, it's a man named Mike Kruger. Some of you may have read his books. He's been published in Oxford University Press, and he's done a quite a good job. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned how he how he went into the ministry or became a theologian. Now, as he has, um, he, he was a um, he was a, a student in, at North Carolina uh, in business, and having been raised in a Christian home. He thought it might be nice while he was in college to take a, a biblical studies class. So he enrolled in a New Testament class with a man named Bart Ehrman. He was completely unprepared for the class. Bart, if you don't know, is uh, probably the sharpest uh, unbelieving New Testament scholar today. Uh, doesn't even make it a profession of faith anymore. Uh, He's very open about his uh, opposition to all things Christian, and he's particularly dangerous because he's not only so smart and been trained by some of the uh, best people, but um, also because about 95% of what he says is true. And he says it in such a way as to greatly confuse uh, people. Mike, Mike was um, overwhelmed by this professor and the things that he kept pointing out and the questions that he had, and he didn't have answers. But you know what he had? He had he had Christian parents and grandparents, earnest Christians. And uh, like Timothy of old, who had uh, Lois and Eunice and knew from whom he had learned these things, he knew that even if he didn't have a single answer for Bart, that Bart was not right and that he had been raised in the truth. Faithful, godly mother, father who opened the Bible and taught the Word of God in his family. He had had no answers. He was blown away by that class. And he says, I'm going to leave my business studies altogether. I'm going to switch to theology. I'm going to get some answers. And I'm going to publish answers for this man, which, by the way, you can find on YouTube uh, a number of shorts in what's called the Ehrman Project, as he's gathered together some of the top Reformed and Evangelical scholars of the world to be able to answer point by point Bart Ehrman, which he couldn't do when he was in school. I, why do I mention this to you? Because, you know, moms, you know, dads, brothers, sisters, older brothers, sisters, you, by the very power of your life, are testifying to the truth of God in a way that even the best unbelieving scholars of the day cannot gainsay. You keep on living a holy life, you keep on testifying. Of the grace of Jesus, you keep on loving the Lord and you will rescue others from their clutches. Well, in conclusion, um, Machen wants the church to be clear. He says the, the greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within. Already in in his day, as he wrote this, it it was on the rise. He said, if this is left unchecked, it's going to take over the church. That's what's happened. However, Majin says, there is, in the Christian life, no room for despair. Only our hopefulness should be founded solely on the precious promises of God laymen as well as ministers should return in these trying days with new earnestness to the study of the word of God. You know, even 50 years ago top 10 seminaries in the country all liberal seminaries. Today, all the top 10 evangelical or reformed seminaries. We need to return with new earnestness to the study of the word of God. If the word of God be heeded, he writes, the Christian battle will be fought with both love and with faithfulness. Every man must decide upon which side he will stand, and God grant that we may decide aright. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous truth announced in this word for its many encouragements for its gospel promises, which we only barely were able to consider today, but even the exhortations that are laced with grace, knowing that we are indeed not only a holy people, but one that has been set apart by Christ himself, preserved and faithful in Christ Jesus. We thank you above all for these great and precious promises of eternal life, promises which shall never fail. In our day, the church is in peril. A great many are following ungodly men to a very ungodly end. And perhaps even you have brought some here this morning to hear this challenging word and to wake them up to where they are going left unchecked. Oh, so we pray that you would rescue people, men and women, boys and girls from such an end. We pray that you would purge the church and cleanse her of, its un- of her unbelief and unrighteousness in many quarters. We pray that you would sanctify us as Christian soldiers marching as to war, and we pray that the truth might shine all the more clearly here in this congregation, and not only now, but from generation to generation. We ask that you would do a exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us by Christ Jesus.